All right, open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 1. We won't spend, a, we won't go through that exegetically. We won't go through it verse by verse. Uh, but it will form a bit of a foundation for, uh, for what we're talking about this morning. So we've taken a four-week break uh, from the book of Genesis for our Christmas series that we've simply titled, O Come. Uh, Josh started off a couple of weeks ago uh, preaching through the Christmas carol, O Come All Ye Faithful. Uh, last week, I preached through the Christmas carol um, in Isaiah 9 of, O Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus. And this week, we will work through the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, it's very, very rare that I would ever preach a sermon twice. Um, I think this is probably the only sermon that I'll ever have preached through three times. Um, it is one of my favorite things about Christmas is this song. Um, and I think, unfortunately, most of you guys are like me, that I'd never really studied the song before. I never really knew much about it. And uh, the last time I preached it was four years ago. I was talking to my Sunday school class, and, and as our church just continues to grow, I thought it was pretty amazing that everybody in my class uh, that week uh, wasn't here four years ago. And it was a packed room, and so I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Because um, I'd asked the question, does anybody remember O Come, O Come, Emmanuel? And, and, and none of them remembered about it and had heard about it. So either they weren't here four years ago or they slept through the whole sermon. One or the other is true. Uh, I like to think maybe they weren't here four years ago. Um, but it, it is by far my favorite Christmas carol to preach through. I think by the time we're done, you'll see why. Uh, next week, I'll be preaching through uh, Matthew 11, uh, verses 25 to 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And so we will continue with the idea of O Come, and then the following week, we'll be back in the book of Genesis. Uh, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy uh, over the years of, of preaching through these familiar Christmas carols is that, we, is that some of these songs are really rich in theology uh, and the substance. And, and most of us have sung these songs uh, all of our lives, but don't always know what we're singing. Right? When our children, we just heard them sing, you know, Gloria in Excelsis Deo. How many of them know what that means? How many of you know what that means? Right? It'd be good to look it up. But we sing these songs and we sing these words literally our whole lives and, and, and we, just, we just sing them. And we go, oh, it's Christmas time, and so it's time when I sing this tune. It's a, it's a cool tune. I enjoy the tune. And so a couple times a year we sing it and without really thought to what it means. And so uh, if you're taking notes in your, in your bulletin, I, I'm sorry for the, the small typeset in there. Uh, honestly, I had about five more points that I was going to add in there, but um, I just figured you guys can just write them wherever. But, uh, but I thought it important to have the words of the song there because we're going to go through those. Uh, but let's look first, number one, at the background. The background. So the song we're doing is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, we do know that it was written uh, in around 800 AD uh, by a monk or, or maybe even a, a group of monks in a monastery somewhere. So that, that's what we know about it. It's, it's 1,200 years ago. It's actually, and I just confirmed with Josh, it's the oldest song that we sing in the church today. Okay, not just the oldest Christmas carol, this is the oldest song that we sing. And, and, and so it, it disappeared 1,200 years ago uh, for about 1,000 years until the 1800s when a pastor named John Mason Neal 
discovered it. And, and Neil was an absolute genius. This guy could, could write and speak over 20 languages. Uh, he was Anglican, but, but he was a little too edgy to be, you know, real faithful Anglican. And they thought he was too evangelical, so they shipped him off to some obscure island off the coast of Africa. And so in spite of, of not being paid much by the Anglican church, uh, this guy lived for Christ his, the rest of his life there uh, on this obscure island. He started an orphanage. He started a, a refuge for prostitutes. He started a school for women. He wrote about 400 hymns. And some of these hymns are, are many of these hymns are still sung in, in, in some circles today. And one of the things I like about him is he was an avid reader. This guy just soaked up books. He read and read and read. He read at meals. He read when he was walking. He read while he was uh, driving horse and carriage. And, and I would say if there's one challenge, I think, to the church that we can take out of that is if you're not a reader. Now, I'm not talking about like Facebook and Twitter. And I oh, know I read text messages all day long. Like, <laughs> I didn't keep count of the amount of books I read this year. I just know it was more than any other year that I've ever read. Uh, Sherry, we were talking about it the other day, and I said, I think I probably read 30 or 40 books this year. And, and some of that is through Audible. I like to, uh, when, I, when I drive, I have Audible. I just finished Rand Paul's book, 15 hours on Audible. To, uh, and so every time I turn on my car, then it just picks up where it left off. And keeps going. So uh, I really enjoy that. I get a lot out of it. I can't really read theological stuff on it. And honestly, the Rand Paul book was way too medical for me. Uh, so I didn't understand 90% of it, but the 10% I understood, I really liked. Um, but I, I discovered though, I don't know if you've realized this, that if you read for five hours a week, okay, so an hour, an hour a day and, and take your weekends off. If you read for five hours a week in any given field, you will have the equivalent knowledge of an expert PhD in seven years. Five hours a week. And we have so many books in our library, at, our, at the offices. Listen, if you, if you want a book, you want to know where to start, we've got tons that you can start with. You know, that would be a good, I don't know if you're in New Year's resolutions, that'd be a good challenge for the New Year's is to be a reader. Uh, so anyway, so one day in the 1800s, Neil is is reading out of this, this out-of-print Catholic hymnal. Uh, it was called, I wrote it down, Psalter Eolium Cantionum Catholicarum. Has anybody read that recently? Not me either. Um, but he comes across the Latin text of this hymn uh, from the 1400s, and, and apparently some, some nuns in a monastery in Portugal put a tune to the song and, and put a tune to the song that was written in 800 AD, and then Neil translated it from Latin to English in the 1800s. 1861, when the new hymnal came out, it was in it. And the rest is history. It's been in all the hymnals ever since then. So think about this now. Monks in the 8th century write a song that was put into music by nuns in the 15th century, and some forgotten, obscure pastor from Africa finds it in the, finds it in the 19th century, translates it, and we still sing it today. And it is brilliant because it really captures the longing for Messiah to, to come that, that we spoke about last week. Oh, come thou long-expected Jesus. Again, I hate one-and-done sermons. They're so difficult to get context and everything else. 
I love this sermon. It's actually, when I saw that, that Christmas Eve was on a Sunday, all I knew is this sermon needed to be preached. Okay, it's the, and you'll see why in a few minutes, but this sermon is a Christmas Eve sermon. And the people who, who are highlighted in, in our Christmas story long for the Messiah to come and to make all things new. I mean, you think about the weeks and months and years that led up to that first Christmas. Think about the promises that were made to Mary or to Zechariah or to Elizabeth or, or Simeon. Think about the, the longing for, for the Messiah to come that was throughout the, uh, the Old Testament. And then we're on the other side of that, right? And so we know that when he does come, the waiting's not over, right? He, he came the first time, but that's just the beginning of our redemption. And, and I said last week, remember that the, the Jews expected and, and wanted a Messiah who would free them from Roman rule, and, but they weren't expecting or wanting a Messiah that would free them from their sin. And what do we say? People get most angry and most anxious when they have expectations and those expectations aren't met. And so it's not until the second coming when the earth will receive her king. And so the longing for King Jesus to rule and to reign isn't over, right? Not until the, I'm sorry, it's not over even though the final sacrifice for sin has been made. The longing isn't over even though the debt has been paid. The longing isn't over even though God's wrath has been satisfied. And the longing isn't over even though our adoption is secure. Even though we have this down payment that secures our salvation, even though like that money is in the bank, even though the first fruits of the harvest are already in the barn, we still, in our day, we are longing for the day that all things will be made new. And in the meantime, Death still snatches away. Diseases still make us miserable. Calamity still strikes our homes and our cities. Satan still prowls around like a roaring lion. Our flesh still wars against our spirit, and sin still indwells our bodies. In fact, Romans 8 teaches that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. And so our future is secure, but the end is not here yet. We're still waiting, still waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, still waiting for the final deliverance from the wrath to come. And, and, and this longing continues, and this is the song that we will sing this morning. And, and even the way it's sung carries the message of, of longing and rejoicing. The way that it's sung, you, 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 you hear the sorrow. You hear the longing in the stanzas, and then it, then it culminates to a crescendo of rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. I mean, think about it. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. It's almost haunting, isn't it? But think about the, those who grew up in the Catholic Church, you remember it, right? Through him, with him, in him. In the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. And then what's the response? You Catholics. <laughs> Think about the doxology we sing. 
Praise God from whom all... Right? It's same kind of thing. And what's the end of the doxology? Amen. So it's, it's, it's a chant. And so the way that, that O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is sung is, is intentional. It's not exuberant. It's not a song like Joy to the World or Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's a song that has these, these two extremes of, of tearful longing to be redeemed and rejoicing because we are redeemed. Look how Paul says it to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 6. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's this song. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing all things. Like that, that's us. Right? We, we live this life in, in this fallen world and it's terribly sorrowful and yet we can rejoice because we have hope in knowing that this world is not our home and our redemption is near. And, and, and if you hang out in, in the sorrowful stanzas, then you'll, you'll, you'll experience the downward spiral of depression. And you'll find the sadness of the world will rob you of the joyful hope that we have in the next world. I mean, just think about how the, each of these stanzas long for the Messiah. It should be on your notes. Just, and we're going to work through each of these, but, but let's just get big picture here. It says first, oh, come wisdom from on high. Like, do we need wisdom from on high? Yeah. Oh, oh come thou Lord of might. Why would we want the Lord of might to come? Because there are things that we can't handle. O come, rod of Jesse, we'll explain that. O come, key of David. O come, day spring. O come, desire of nations. And then the, the last of them, which we always sing first for some reason, is actually, it's the last. It's O come, O come, Emmanuel. And so that, that O in there, that O come, it's, it's the longing for a specific character trait in Christ. And each stanza is followed up at the very end with this crescendo of rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. So rejoice, rejoice. God is with us. And we typically, we only sing three or four stanzas, but there's seven. Each of them is called an antiphon, meaning it's something you chant. It's something you sing responsively. And so one side would sing the longing for the character of Christ. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And, and at the chorus, and everybody joins in. Rejoice, rejoice. God is with us. And so from the last prophet in the Old Testament to John the Baptist in the New Testament, God is silent for 400 years. And the people long for God to bring the Messiah. And God's silent ever been there before. You pray and you just don't even feel like my prayers leave this room. You're asking for help. You're reading his word and, and nothing. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, oh, come, God, with us. Oh, come, Messiah, come among us. Like, do what you said that you would do. Tomorrow, I would imagine that your family is going to be a lot like my family. The, the, the Luke 2 that Josh read is, is, uh, is what we will, before we open presents, before anything else, the, the kids and grandkids, they sit around, they go, okay, can we read Luke 2? 
Let's, let's read Luke 2. Now listen, I know, that let's read Luke 2 so we get to the presence, so we get to the good stuff, right? But, but it's, it's our tradition, like we want to put him first. But this song is not a Luke 2 song. This song is a Luke 1 song. Luke 1 doesn't start with the birth of, birth of Christ. It starts by foretelling the birth of John the Baptist. And so Luke chapter 1 I'm just going to read through our text. We won't spend a lot of time in it this morning. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So these are, this is, remember, these are 400 silent years. And then verse 7 starts with but. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the, order, uh, in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. By the way, let's just stop at verse 11 for a second. Uh, do you notice the difference? If you've been in here at Genesis study or, or any length of time at CBC, you, you realize that the term the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is always every time an a, a, a appearance of Jesus before Bethlehem. So you'll notice in the passages, a passage I read earlier, and, and in this one as well, it doesn't say the angel of the Lord. What's it say? An angel of the Lord. Okay, different. Verse 12, Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn, away, or turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Well, why would he do that? Well, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so you can really see in this passage that, that they are longing for Jesus. God has been silent for 400 years, and so they're longing for God to be among them like he promised. They, they long for the Messiah. The, the timing is absolutely perfect. So God uh, sends a messenger before he sends Emmanuel, and that's John the Baptist, who, by the way, just happens to be Jesus' cousin. So two of the, the most significant humans to ever walk the face of the earth, John and Jesus are born within weeks of each other at the perfect time. Galatians 4, look at verse 4. He says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So at the perfect time, the Roman road system has been set up. There was one language so that the, the, the whole world could hear the gospel. It was a common trade language. 
Everything is set up. Everything's ready for the, the Messiah to come. And, and so the people are longing for it, and the promised Messiah is coming. And so the, the theme of, of each of the seven verses uh, to describe Christ in, in the Latin, and do we have any Latin experts in here? None? Good. So I could be lying to you, and you'd never know. <laughs> Jesus would know. <laughs> So, but but the, they form an acrostic. And so, Grady, if you would put up this next slide. Um, so this is what it looks like. It's, the, the word is sarcore, S-A-R-C-O-R-E. And, and that S is like, oh, sapentia in the Latin. It would be, oh, wisdom, right? We want wisdom to come down. Oh, Adonai. Remember Adonai from, from Genesis, right? We talked, that's Lord. Oh, Radix Jesse, which is translated root of Jesse. Oh, Clavis David or Key of David. Oh, Orions or Dayspring. Rex Gentiums, Desire of Nations. Oh, Emmanuel, God with us. And so this actually, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that, that stanza should be sung last, but we always put it first. And you go, what's the big deal about SARCOR? Well, SARCOR is an acronym, and so you have to read out the, the seven descriptions, which we just, just did, right? And, and here's where it gets really cool. If you take SARCOR and you, and you flip it over, it spells Aerocross. Which means nothing <laughs> to us, right? Except... Aerocross means I will be there tomorrow. So, so here's the way it's sung. On the, the 18th, you would, you would sing the first verse. And then on the 19th, you sing the second verse and you keep going on. So on the 24th, you sing the last verse, the, the climactic verse, o, o come, O come, Emmanuel. And, and the answer to that is Sarkor has been completed. I'll be there tomorrow, Christmas. I, I think that's really cool. And so there, there's thought put into this song. And, and I think as the church has, has moved away from older hymns and in this attempt to be, to be cool or, or relevant, then, then we end up singing these easy songs of worship that we don't even have to think about. We just repeat the same words over and over and over again. But I really think it's good just to, to flesh this out, to, to actually get point number two, the meaning of it. You know, we, we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It, it, the Christian life is not this blind leap of faith that we take. Loving God with our mind means we, we think through these things. It, it actually forces us to do that if we'll take the time. And, and so what we're going to do is we're gonna, I'm going to read through each one of these seven verses, and we'll explain it a little bit. And then what we're going to do is we're, we're just going to sing the song together. And, and Josh has this great arrangement where, where it might be that the men are singing the, the, the stanza, and then the whole church rejoices together. It may be that just Josh is singing, but we have seven opportunities to see how this was done. And then, and then we pull it into more of a, a modern uh, 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 melody, a modern version of it. It's just beautiful. But we could have done that early and just sung it not having had any idea what it means. And so verse 1 says, O come, 
Thou wisdom from on high, and order things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show, and teach us in her ways to go, her being wisdom. And so the call is for wisdom. And you think wisdom, you think book of Proverbs, right? Speaks about our, our need for, for wisdom and, and, and Jesus being the personification of wisdom. And this is exactly what Paul said. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And, and so this first stanza is, is a picture of, of, of longing for Jesus to come and, and in his wisdom, fix this stuff. Well, we, we have messed this up so bad. Like our wisdom has destroyed things. Even in the book of James, James says, if any one of you lack wisdom, just let him ask of God. He gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You, you see throughout Proverbs, the admonition is long for wisdom, right? Seek for it, cry for it, incline your ear to it. Let wisdom be your intimate friend. And we would simplify and say, oh, come. Thou wisdom from on high. Verse 2, O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. What's that speaking about? Speaking about Sinai. Mount Sinai, when uh, Exodus 19, God gave the Ten Commandments. Remember, on the, on the morning of the third day, there's all this thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and trumpet blast coming from the mountain. And all the people in the camp are, are, I mean, they are terrified. This mountain is being torn apart by God, and, and God warns them, don't come up on the mountain. That is not a problem. Nobody wants to go because they're, they're absolutely terrified. That's the God of the second verse. Have you ever thought of like longing and, and inviting, oh, come, a God of might? I mean, this, have you ever longed and said, oh, oh, come, terrifying God? That's verse two. That, that's the God we're singing to come back. That is not the God we see in the manger at Christmas. The God in the manger at Christmas is this cute little helpless baby Jesus. He's got this clean manger and he's sleeping, not crying. Why? Because it's silent night. So Christmas is not this, you know, here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. Christmas is, is about the great, mighty, terrifying, awesome God who humbled himself by becoming a baby. And we need to remember that because we can too often magnify this helpless baby. We can too often think way too much about his love or his compassion or his mercy and completely forget about his wrath and judgment and condemnation. So when we sing, oh, come, Thou Lord of might. That's what we're singing. Verse 3. Come thou rod of Jesse's stem. From every foe deliver them that trust thy mighty power to save and give them victory over the grave. What's victory over the grave? The resurrection. So this verse highlights the hope of the Christian life. 
Listen, we, we hope for heaven. We hope for maybe mansions in heaven. We hope for an easy life or a better life. But our, our real hope, the hope for, for the Christian is the resurrection. Our bodies are breaking down, but, but since Jesus was resurrected, then one day we will be resurrected. That, that shoot springing up from, from Jesse's stem is a picture of the resurrection. Isaiah 11 verse 1, a shoot will spring up from, Je- from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. You know how you, you, you cut down a tree and, and then there's a stump left? And then at the side of the stump there comes this little shoot. And from that shoot a whole tree will grow from there. Springing from a dead stump. He's going to free his people. How? By death and resurrection. He's going to free them from Satan's tyranny. He's going to make them free forever. Remember Jesse? Jesse is, is David, King David's dad. There's going to be a kingdom that comes from Jesse and David. John writes about this in Revelation 5, and it says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, that is the, that the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome as to open the book and its seven seals. And so the root of Jesse has overcome the greatest of all enemies, and that's the enemy of death. And because he overcame death, then we also will overcome death. That's the hope of the resurrection. And that, that's what it means when, when we sing, Come, thou rod of Jesse's stem, from every foe deliver them that trust thy mighty power to save and give them victory over the grave. And then verse 4, O come, thou key of David. Notice on the sarcor, it was clavis David. Come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high that we no more have cause to sigh. really goes back, this verse, to Isaiah 22, to Revelation 3. It's about the fact that Jesus has been given the key of David to open our heavenly home, and it's a home that no, nobody can shut the door on. So he rescues us from hell. He locks the door behind us. He unlocks the door of heaven and brings us home, and that's what keys do, right? Keys open things. They give access to something. I like what Adrian Rogers said. He said, everyone needs three homes— a family home, a church home, and a heavenly home. Jesus Christ is the key to all three. Isn't that good? Everyone needs three homes. A family home, a church home, and a heavenly home. Jesus Christ is the key to all three. Now listen here. Jesus doesn't have the key. Jesus is the key. Right? He is the key to open wide our heavenly home so that we have no more cause to sigh. When do you sigh? You sigh when you're frustrated. You sigh when you lose hope. Married people sigh. So do single people. If you have kids, you sigh. Kids, if you have parents, you sigh. (laughs) Bosses sigh. Students sigh. Teachers sigh. Anybody who has bills, they sigh. Life can be hard. I'm, I'm ready to be done sighing. And he is the key to open up a, a whole new world 
where there's no more sighing. Verse 5, O come, thou dayspring. When, when he, that word dayspring, it's a kind of a fancy way of saying dawn or sunrise. So, O come, thou dayspring from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadow put to flight. And the idea in this fifth verse is a, is a longing for the light to come. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 78. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so it's, it's a longing for this, this light to come. It's, it's a longing for sunrise. And there's, there's something about sunrise that brings hope, isn't there? I remember my first time deer hunting with Sherry's grandfather in Ohio in November, and it's cold. Now, I'm, I'm from Clearwater. Okay, so here I am, a kid from Clearwater, sitting in the woods in Ohio at 4.30 in the morning, and I am freezing. So I'm waiting for the sun to come up, and so as I'm waiting for the sun to come up, I'm walking around, I'm doing jumping jacks, I'm trying to stay warm, and I'm wondering why I never saw any deer. (laughs) And when sun came out, it was like, oh, man. Well, that's the cry of this verse. It's a, it's, a, it's a longing for sunrise to disperse these gloomy clouds of night. Like put these, put these dark shadows to flight, right? And we've all longed for that. God, get rid of the darkness and, and shine your light. And so it, it becomes almost this, yes, we're redeemed, but not yet. Right? Same idea as, as in his first coming, he came as light, and yet there's still darkness. We have the, can- the, the darkness of cancer, the darkness of divorce, the darkness of depression, the darkness of, of arthritis, the darkness of anxiety, the darkness of unemployment, the darkness of finances, the darkness of death. Great thing about the darkness is that it only lasts till morning. It only lasts till the sun comes up. This, this is true in nature, but it's also true in our hope for eternity. Revelation 22, verse 5, and there will be no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light or of a, of, a, of a lamp, nor light of the sun. Why? Because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And so, so come, thou day spring. Right, there, there's coming a day when, when there will no, be no more need for the S-U-N because of the S-O-N. Verse 6, O come, desire of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind, bid all our sad divisions cease, and be thyself our king of peace. Now, this is one verse in this that's controversial. Uh, and it, it's been changed in newer versions of this song. Some say it's a bad translation from the Latin Vulgate. Um, Others say it's a a bad translation from Haggai 2. I would say you can sing it and Santa's not going to put coal in your stockings, okay? Um, But look at Haggai 2, verse 7. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So the song seems to indicate that the desire, the, the desire of the nations, which is the wealth of the nations, right? Everybody wants wealth. Is, gonna, is the wealth is actually going to bind the nations together in unity in Christ. That doesn't happen. 
That's not, biblically, the desire of nations will come in. It's not that the desire of nations will come in, but that the people of the kingdom will bring their treasure in to lay at the feet of Jesus. So they're going to bring the desire of the nations to the king of the nations. And the result is, with one heart then, we will cease to have sad divisions because the king of peace is going to be reigning and ruling. By the way, that there's no peace until the king of nations returns. That's when he's going to rid the world of darkness and sin. So you're, we're longing for a king of nations to bring peace to the nations. We need that today. And then look at the final concluding verse, verse 6. Oh, come, oh, come. And you guys all know this one, right? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Now, when you think of Israel, think of slavery. Think of captivity. Really, historically, that's the nation of Israel. They were enslaved by the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and enslaved under the Romans. Many are wanting to enslave them again today. And so they long to, for God to come among them to solve the slavery problem. Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, a God with us. And so God, we long, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We're like, God, deliver us, ransom us, ransom captive Israel. What happens with a ransom is, is one person pays off another person so that one per, another person can be set free. And that's what Jesus did. Matthew 20, verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, a payment for many. 1 Peter 1, verse 18, <clears throat> knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. God didn't ransom you with his riches. God ransomed you with his son. He, he's your payment. I mean, it, it'd be cool just if you sing this song as, as if you were Israel. Oh, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Mike. Because outside of Christ, I'm a slave to sin. I, I mourn in lonely exile. Why? Because of my sins and my mistakes or, or maybe even the sins of others. And so the calling and the, the long is free me and ransom me and save me. And, and then the response is, is Sarkor or Aerocross. Just listen, just wait one more day. I'll be there tomorrow, Christmas. We rejoice that God is with us. And listen, if Israel is pumped up about the Messiah coming, how much more should we be? I mean, without Christ, we are slaves to sin. Without Christ, we are slaves to a life without hope beyond the grave. And so we need more than anybody else in all of history to be ransomed from slavery. And when we are, the response is rejoice, rejoice. I love, I love how Israel responded when they were released from slavery. Psalm 126, verse 1 says, When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, 
In other words, those who were in slavery, when the Lord brought them back, our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the other nations are looking on, and they said, wow, the Lord has done great things for them. And indeed, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And if God has ransomed you, if he has brought you out of captivity, you are no longer a slave and you have every reason to rejoice. rejoice. Your mouth should be filled with laughter. Your tongue should be filled with joyful shouting. Everyone should see it. Everyone should say, the Lord has done great things for them. And so just like he came the first time, he's coming the second time. And it's double rejoicing. And the way that it's written, the verses are depressing intentionally, but the refrain is not. And he will come, and he is faithful. God is with us. And as we close this sermon and get ready to sing together, I want you to understand this this wonderful point here. And that is that if you've lost a loved one, This may be, I think, for many of you, the first Christmas that you'll have without a loved one. Just know he's faithful. If you're depressed, if you're hurting, if you feel guilty, know that if you are in Christ, then he is with you. And know that if you're not in Christ, then today is the day of salvation. The one who loved you, chose you and ransomed you. And he is here with you. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And if you've never experienced that forgiveness that comes in Christ. Listen, the gospel message is so simple that that a child can understand it. But so profound that even the, the wisest in the world are befuddled by it. God left heaven. He became a man Christmas morning. He lived this life on this earth as the God-man, 100% God and 100% man. As man, he, he could face the trials and the temptations and feel pain and anxiety and all these things. But as God, he never sinned. So he lived that life that, that you and I tried to live, but we can't live because of sin. And then he died the death that we deserved because of our sin. You go, well, how do I know that this is true? Three days after he died, he rose from death, Easter. He beat, he has victory over the greatest uh, foe, and that foe is death. He loves you, he died for you, and one day you will see his face and his nail-scarred hands and feet. You will see the wounds on his side, and you will see the glory of God face to face. You won't even have to have faith anymore. You ever thought about that? You will not even have that faith anymore because faith is a conviction of things hoped for and evidence of things not yet seen. We, need, we won't need faith because we'll see him just as he is. And until that day comes, life is going to be full of sighing. That's why we need each other. Father, thank you. What a tremendous song this is. Thank you for the thought that was put into it. Thank you for the care that has preserved it. 
I thank you that we can sing it today, that, that we, like Israel, long for a Messiah. We long for a Messiah that has already come, but has promised to come back. Father, I pray for those in here today that have never trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. They've been trusting in their own goodness, good works, or family traditions, or church background, but not in Christ. So, Father, I thank you for accomplishing all that we needed there at Calvary, and I pray for those in here today that need to repent of their sins, turn from them, and turn to you. Father, I pray for the church. Continue to equip us and edify us and encourage us and let us be a light. The light who came also said that we are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So I pray that we would let our light shine in such a way that others would see our good works and glorify you, our Father, who's in heaven. Now take this time of worship and be pleased. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's sing together and then we'll go.